Well, good morning, and welcome to Hope Lower Town. Glad you're able to be here. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here at Lower Town, and glad uh, glad you're able to make it uh, here. And uh, as it's getting colder, which is always fun, I like I like the cold. I am always uh, sweaty, and um, and so I'm thankful for it. Um, <clears throat> You ever, uh, you ever see anything like this? This is uh, a lost and found uh, section, you know what I'm talking about, right? As a kid, maybe uh, at the school it was like this. I know uh, this church, we have one here. It's not quite as uh, ridiculous as this. And, and, uh, but I, I just remember like you know, when you lose something or you leave something behind, I know a lot of you know me and have my phone numbers. So you're like, oh man, I, I left my, my gloves. Uh, where's Ben? He's done that, done that a few times. Oh, he walked out, he's not in here. Right, but just whatever it is, like, oh man, I left my journal. I've had this journal for 20 years. Like, I can't lose this thing, but I left it at the church or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I don't know where it is. It's not here. And sometimes when it ends up in lost and found, it gets like more lost than it is found. You know what I mean? Like, I, I know where I left it. I just got to be able to go back to that spot. And then, and then someone thinking they're doing you a favor uh, moves it to the lost and found, and then it gets lost in that. And then someone's like, oh, this looks nice. I'll take that. Um, and it's and it's always fun. I remember hearing a, a prank call one time where somebody called like a uh, a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, like a, what do you, what do you call those things? Uh, a nice, a nice place where rich people go to play golf. Country club. Unbelievable. I could not think of the word. And, uh, and I remember like there's this prank call and someone comes, calls in and says, Hey, I left my, I left my watch there. And they're like, Oh yeah, I know we, we have a watch here. You know, can you describe it? And they're like, yeah, well it's, it's gold. And they're like, no, no, it's not. And uh, they're like, well, you know, well, well what, else, what else do you have in there? You know, it's like, no, that's not how this, it's not how any of this works, right? You can't just call in and, and say, what do, you, what do you have? Let me describe it. And then it's yours. Um, but that's, when we look at something that's lost and then found and something that's really lost and then found, and, and I think that this is actually what happens in the book of Nehemiah. And so as we enter into the ninth week of Nehemiah, we're going to kind of recap real, real briefly, but looking at something that was, that was lost uh, that they found, and then because it was lost, even part of finding this this thing that was lost uh, causes them to actually mourn and be sad. But then they're actually then called to rejoice and to praise God because it is now found. And so we've been just walking through the book of Nehemiah. And so this week we are in Nehemiah chapter 12. And so last week I thought uh, I had the passage wrong. I didn't. I was actually right last week. We were in Nehemiah chapter 9. And my brain for some reason was shooting forward to this week. And so we did skip a couple chapters. And again, it's not because there's anything in there that, that makes you uncomfortable or, or is not cool to talk about. It's just a lot of genealogies and lists of names, which are fantastic. Uh, at the same time, just for us and our practicality of getting through the entire book of Nehemiah uh, before uh, Christmas gets here, because that's going to be here like soon. Well, we're talking about the genealogy of Jesus, actually, uh, in Matthew chapter 1 uh, very quickly here in a couple weeks. So this is the correct passage of Nehemiah chapter 12, 27 through 43. And I'm actually not even going to read the whole thing like I normally do. I'm going to kind of skip over some things again, because even in this, there are some lists of names that, uh, to be honest, I don't know how to pronounce. Well, I know how to pronounce them, but I know you don't. It makes you feel a little silly. So I'm just going to skip them uh, this week, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. Um, so just, again, in context recap, um, uh, Nehemiah, he's, he's actually not a prophet. And so when we, when we look at these Old Testament books, and there's a lot of these 
prophets that are, that are writing, and, and one of a contemporary of him is going to be Ezra, who is a prophet of Israel. And Nehemiah is just going to be a leader, somebody who did something extraordinary for this people, and he's going to be their governor, but he's not actually a prophet, but even though he has penned a book that is in um, uh, Israel's scriptures and, and ours as well. And so um, he is a cupbearer to Artaxerxes I. And so if you remember Artaxerxes I, uh, Artaxerxes the Great, powerful, very powerful man. Uh, and, and, and Nehemiah, even though he's kind of second in command as cupbearer to him and is very close with him, uh, is fearful because he hears that Jerusalem has been destroyed, the walls are torn down, the gates are on fire, and he wants to go to him and say, hey, can I go back to my hometown? Can we rebuild these walls and these gates? And he's terrified of Artaxerxes, which makes sense because when you read about Artaxerxes that he literally killed someone with his own bare hands in order to become king and then because just four years prior to this moment where Nehemiah is going to say, hey, can we rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? They were already trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and Artaxerxes sent an army there and said, stop this. You can't do this. You can't rebuild these walls. So here Nehemiah is going to go to his friend, to the king, and say, hey, we want to rebuild these walls. He gets permission as he's there trying to rebuild the walls. He's getting just tons of, of persecution, if you want to call it that, and just propaganda of hatred of, of nations and armies around him from, from other people that live around the area that are trying to overthrow what Nehemiah is doing. It doesn't work. God helps him out through all those different things, and he ends up rebuilding the wall. And so then a couple weeks ago, we looked at how Ezra, then again, again a contemporary with Nehemiah, and this is going to be right before we really get to the New Testament. This is kind of the last book of the Old Testament, even though chronologically, or at least when we read our Bibles, it, it, it's not that way, but it, it should be. And um, not that they did a bad job putting the Bible together. I don't hear that. I'm just saying it chronologically doesn't make sense. Uh, and so when we look at Nehemiah, and Ezra comes and reads from the law, and that's, that's what was lost, Right, so he gets up, Nehemiah, or Ezra, excuse me, reads the old law that they just, they didn't know about. All these Israelites, as they're coming back to Jerusalem because the walls had been built, they're going, we didn't know about any of these laws. We didn't know what we were supposed to be doing. And, and the problem is, in those laws, they're actually commanded to celebrate and rejoice. And here they are mourning over what they had lost, even though they're being commanded to rejoice. And so that's what's going on that they were just in, in mourning over what was lost, over not living the way that they knew that God had told them to live. And so they were then just remembering what God had done for their people over the centuries. That as they were, they were looking back over the track record of God, as he looked over the Israelites all the way back from the, from the Garden of Eden, going all the way through the people and all these major things. We spent a good chunk of our time a couple weeks ago just, just reading the passage of what they were remembering. And they remembered what God had done for those people. And so they weren't called just to mourn over what was lost, but they were called then to rejoice over what was found. And so I want to read through uh, most of the passage, but um, again, kind of skipping some spots and, and uh, you'll kind of see that. So Nehemiah chapter 12, uh, starting verse 27 says this, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So they finished the wall and now they're going to have this big party and they're going to dedicate the wall, if you will. And the Levites, uh, the, the priests uh, were sought out from where they had lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the uh, Neftaphtalites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmerath, 
and the musicians who had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. And when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, right, they're, they're going back, this is what we lost, we need to get back to what God has called us to do. They purified themselves, they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Um, and I don't know ceremonially what that would even look like, but they, they dedicate the walls and the gates uh, back to God. And so going to verse 31, it says, I had the leaders of Judah go up to the top of the wall, and I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. And so when we think, I think when we think of a wall, we think of a wall like, like these walls, right? And, and you can't go up on top and you can't do that. And I understand we would understand how a, a wall around a city would work, but they're, they're huge. They're, they're, they're massively wide. I don't know, it doesn't give us the dimensions exactly of this wall, but wide enough that a large group of people could walk. They were designed that way to be able to have armies up there to protect um, as people are trying to come up or over the walls. You can kind of kind of get that Lord of the Rings mentality in your, in your mind, if you will. And that's what they're doing. So these huge choirs are, are going up on top of these walls. They're walking around. And it says, and one was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right uh, toward the dung gate. Uh, and then he kind of lists all the people that are doing that and the Levites in charge of that with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. And then Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. Okay, so Ezra, who's come, uh, the prophet, the teacher of the law, he's going to be out front, and he's going to be leading the way of this choir and this procession going one way around the wall. And it says, At the fountain gate they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir, all right, so another choir then proceeded in the opposite direction. Okay, so they're kind of going completely around this in opposite directions, and they're going to meet up in the middle. It says, I followed them on top of the wall, together with half of the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, and uh, Jeshaniah gate, and the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, at the gate of the guard, they stopped, all right? And then he's going to keep going. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. And so did I, okay? So they kind of went around and they meet together in the temple and together with half of the officials as well as the priests. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing, right? They, 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 something was lost, they were in mourning, but now they're rejoicing because what God, because God had given them great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. That's, that's really what we're going to be talking about today, this aspect of rejoicing and looking at this. And rejoicing of, of responding is just a natural response to God moving in some way, shape, or form. That when, when we see God do something, whether you want to call it miraculous or just in your own life and something personal of, of changing, of I've been struggling with this sin and, and it seems like, man, I've been really getting victory over this thing or I've been praying for this individual and they, they finally have, have turned their life around and we can rejoice in that. Just this last week in our uh, systematic theology class, um, uh, we were uh, with our interns downtown, we were looking uh, at the topic of prayer. And, and prayer is one of those really interesting things that when we really, really boil it down, all right? I'm going to get real with you, okay? I'm not, I guess I'm always real with you. Uh, I'm just, whatever, okay. Uh, that when, when we look at prayer, if, if really, I mean, let's just think about this. If God is actually sovereign, right? If I believe in the providence of God, that he is in control of everything, why in the world would I ever pray? God, please do this. 
It doesn't make any sense. He's already going to do it or not going to do it. So why do we do it, right? So we're having these, these conversations, and, and, and as we're getting there, and I, and I don't have time to, to delve into that, so sorry for dropping that bomb, but prayer matters. Prayer changes things that God responds to us, and whether we do something or don't do something. And so uh, this, is, this is just true of a God who's unchangeable, that he does things in, in different responses to how we move. But when he does move, it causes us to respond. And so the question that I gave the interns this week was, what, what makes you want to pray? What, what have you seen that happens in your life? And one of the biggest reasons that motivates me to prayer is just God doing something, that he's answered some kind of prayer, and that's a natural response to God moving, that I want to give him praise, I want to give him thanksgiving, I want to cry out, and that's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. That is a natural response to see God take that people and move them into this transition of safety with these walls and all that he's been doing for their people that they respond in rejoicing and a matter of fact psalm 147 this was new to me this week i I didn't know this um, but learned that psalm 147 was actually penned during this time that whoever the psalmist was who who penned this we don't know uh, but they wrote this psalm in response to this exact situation so so it's possible that these choirs as they were as they were marching around and singing they were singing this song all right so this is psalm 147 and i just have verses one through eight but you can kind of get the context here of what's going on just right off the bat praise yahweh praise the lord for it is good to sing praises to our god for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting, right? Just this is a natural response. Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars, and he gives all of them their names. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make melody to our God and with the lyre, and he covers the heavens with clouds, and he prepares rain for the earth, and he makes grass grow on the hills. There's all this just praise and thanksgiving that's going up at this time, and there's a lot of joy. And if you caught it in verse 43, I'm actually going to read out of the ESV. Normally I read from the NIV, but here's the ESV, uh, which is just a little bit more uh, literal in their translation of the Hebrew text. doesn't matter. But Nehemiah, I read it because it has the word joy in there one more time. NIV has it four. ESV's got it in there five times. Five times the word joy is in this one little verse. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. Right? I mean, that's like, you can't say that with any more joy. You can't overjoy this statement. And I love, again, what Nehemiah does here. He does this whole thing. You've been here, we've been talking about this whole Jesus juke thing, right? Where something's going on, something's happening. All right, he, he, he devises some plan to protect them while the walls are being built. And then he stands back and he says, man, look what God did. And then, and then it's the same kind of thing here. He's going back and rejoicing, for God made them rejoice with great joy. And this isn't some kind of active rejoicing, right? Like God's standing there and he's going, you get joy and you get joy and you get joy, right? It's not that kind of a thing. Like they're just getting zapped with joy. It's simply looking passively at what God has done. And because they can look then back at what God's done, they go, holy cow, that God has given me joy, great joy. And then it says, and the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, that all the people gathered together, and they sang, and they rejoiced. There's a lot 
of joy. And so I think it, it begs the question, do we have anything to be joyful about? The truth is, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't, I don't know if you're in, in, a, in, a, in a point of depression, of, of darkness, of fear, of loss, whatever that may be. I don't know where you're at. But I think that when we look at the passages that, that we have looked at, but that where we're going to look at, it's my prayer that you will see the answer to the, this question is yes. You'll say, I've got, I've got nothing, I've got nothing. I'm at, I'm at my wit's end. I hope that by the end of this afternoon, this afternoon, this morning, we've only got like 20 more minutes, don't worry, um, that the answer to that question will be yes. So I wanna, I wanna set the stage about where we're going to go. All right, I need you to keep in mind this whole idea of lost and found. And Jesus is gonna share three parables, which if you have ever been to the church, maybe you've never stepped foot in a church, you've probably heard something about these stories some way, shape, or form. Maybe not, but they are very, very popular, um, even within just our culture, let alone Christian culture. So keep in mind this idea of lost and found. This is in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is going to tell three parables, three, three stories. They're not necessarily true stories where people have names and he's re recounting a historical event. He's just, he's given a, a parable. He's telling a story that, that uh, um, gives us real, good, concrete truths about who God is and what he is like. So here's, here he is setting the stage, right? At least uh, Dr. Luke is here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And right there, that could just be such a, just a quick phrase. You're like, Here, here's who's listening. Okay, but we got to think about this. The tax collectors and sinners were gathered around to hear Jesus. But then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, so who are the tax collectors and sinners? I've, I've shared this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it again. The tax collectors were just straight up traitors. I mean, unbelievable traitors, like treason within their own culture and their people group, turning their backs on them and not just turn their backs of like, oh, I'm not a Jew anymore, but literally collecting taxes for the invading Roman occupation. All right, they're, they're, they're friends, they're, they're people that say, hey, I, I wanna be on team Rome, uh, not team Israel. And so I'm gonna help collect taxes. I'm gonna make money, right? They're, like they're in a, they're in a, category of their own of, of wicked people, right? They, they eat with tax collectors and sinners. So the sinners though, this is a much broader group. This could be people who are, who are known, right? In the community for their sin, this could be, right? Cheaters, swindlers, right? Prostitutes, anybody who'd be like, oh, that's that person. Oh, that's, that's that guy. That's that woman, right? That, that they were known for that. This would have been people even, unfortunately, that would have had some kind of physical or, or mental handicap or, or something, some kind of a handicap that they were just, they didn't know what to do with it. And a lot of unfortunate, really bad theology said, if you lived or acted that way or had some kind of deformity, it was because either your parents sinned or you sinned. And that's why this thing is true about you. And, it, and they were just put into this category of sinners. The broader population were just non-practicing Jews. So, so uh, an ethnic Jew who just said, this is all crazy talk. Uh, I, I don't believe any of this stuff that you guys are talking about, um, that they were lumped into this group as sinners. Okay, so that's a, two groups of people, traitors, sinners, prostitutes, non-practicing Jews, whatever. They don't believe anything about any of this stuff. They're on one side of the road, right? You just, just give a, get a mental image of this. They're gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
The religious leaders, right, the, the, the pastors, the, the people who, who know the Bible backwards and forwards literally probably have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. I hardly have those names of the five books memorized, let alone the contents of those five books. That's who's here. Incredibly righteous, religious individuals. And they look at Jesus with this crowd, and he says, this man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that phrase, what, so what if he eats with them, right? This is still true today, that when you have a meal with somebody, when you invite somebody into your house, this is an, this is an intimate thing. I want you to sit down at my table. I'm going to share a meal. I don't want you to clean up. I'm gonna, we're going to do all that stuff. We just want to host. We want to invite you in. We want to care for you. We want to love you. All these different things. And, and if I'm going to have a knockdown, drag out conversation with somebody, it's probably not going to be in my dining room with my children present. It's not going to happen. That's not where I, I get along with my enemies is over the dinner table in my house. And, and so this is what he's saying. This is an intimate thing that Jesus welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And again, culturally, they wouldn't just sit in chairs. They would literally be reclining on one another. They'd be, they'd be touching one another as they communed and ate this meal. That is what they're saying about Jesus who is eating with these individuals. So then Jesus... <clears throat> Oh, sorry, let me go back. This is why I have notes, right? I want you to think about this. He's going to give these two different, two different groups in these stories and these parables, right? And I want, to, I want you to ask the question, who are you? I think a lot of times it's really easy when we read the Bible to go, to be the good guy, right, if you will, right? To read a story of somebody struggling with the sin. And we think about the Pharisee who goes to the, the temple and, and he prays and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like this sinner. And then the other the sinner who's like, he doesn't even look up to heaven, but he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? I think it's easy for us to go, oh, that's, that's me. I would never do what that guy did, right? And so I want us just to be careful here and just say, who, who are you in the story? Because, what, well, I'm not gonna give anything away. Yeah, I am, doesn't matter. Um, guess what? They're both, they're both outsiders, <laughs> Right, they're, they're, they're both unable to pay their debts, period. So I just wanna look at who are you? And at the same time, these stories are not about you. Right, the Bible wasn't written about you or me or us, but it is written to us, it is written for us. And so I wanna look at this and just ask these questions, where are we? Today, maybe yesterday, maybe tomorrow, and this could change maybe by tonight, where we're at. I just wanna ask that question, okay? So as we look at these parables, let's start with the parable of the lost sheep. And Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Right, now, again, imagine you're one of these individuals in these groups, right? You're, 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 you're somebody who says, I, I don't believe any of this stuff. This is crazy. Or, this guy's been teaching some really wild things, and he actually seems to, to like me right where I am. He's not expecting me to, to be just religious all of a sudden. And then you've got these religious people saying, uh, this guy needs to shut his mouth because he's going against everything that we've taught for thousands of years. All right, that, that's the two groups. So, so he says this parable, and you can imagine they would just be like, all right, Who's the lost sheep? I'm confused. I don't really understand what's going on. But then he says this, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one, and then here he uses the same word that they know they're in that category, over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent or don't even realize they need to repent, right? So now all of a sudden you can hear this group of sinners just going, oh, he did it, right? They're talking about me, right? He's rejoicing over me, right? And you can hear them start grumbling, getting mad, going, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament teaches that I need to obey the law. And if I obey the law, I will live by the law. That's what it teaches, Jesus. You're getting a little crazy talk that I can just do whatever I want. And yet that that shepherd's still going to come find me where I am. Sounds crazy, Jesus. So clearly it's not clear enough for them. So then he tells the next parable of the lost coin. And he says this, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And there's a lot of cultural things that are going on here with the 10 coins, which I'm not going to get into, but it was more of an adornment. It was, it was a, 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 a heritage, a possession that would have been handed down, kind of like an heirloom. Um, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, again, here it is, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. Because these people aren't repenting. They think they've already repented. And in case it isn't clear, he then gets to this next story. The prodigal son is what it's famously called, except I don't think that's a good term or name for this story. Because it's not just about the prodigal son. Prodigal simply just means wild living son. It's not just about him. There's two sons here that he's going to discuss. And so just in case those other stories aren't clear, Jesus is going to clarify it even more by telling the story of the prodigal son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. In other words, this estate would only have been given and only been distributed after the father was dead. After the father dies. So in other words, what he's saying is, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff. One of my favorite musical groups is called Flannel Graph. Um, And if you grew up in the church, at least when you were old enough, there were like little flannel graph things that stick. And like it was Jesus one week and Moses the next week and and David. And it was always the same person, right? Um, It was very confusing as a child. Like, Jesus! No, that's not Jesus. That's Saul. Oh, okay. Um, Right? But that's the name of their group, Flannel Graph. They write a song on the prodigal son. and, and, And the first line is, I told my dad I didn't love him anymore. All right? And that's exactly what's happening here. So in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That's what prodigal really means. After he had spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. All right, so again, remember remember who's sitting here listening to this story. That you have these people who go, maybe that describes me, the one who squandered everything in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. And again, he's talking to Israelites, and that's a big, 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 big no-no. That is explicitly against the Old Testament law to go hanging out with pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
Verse 17, and when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Again, remember, put yourself in the position of the sinner, right? Of this prodigal son. How many of my father's hired his servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, right? And you can picture him rehearsing this speech, right? We've all done that. I got to make an important phone call, right? So we pace around and we practice the speech. That's what's happening here, right? He says, this is his speech. I just want him to say to my dad, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And in that song, I was talking about in flannel graph. He, when we get to this point, he's saying he's, he's just at wit's end. There's nothing left for him. And then the chorus kind of comes in and he says, I had nothing, I had nothing, I had nothing, but I had somebody. And I, I was at my wit's, I got nothing. And yet there was somebody that I know that if I will go back to, maybe he will hire me as one of his servants because he has compassion. There's something about my dad that says, Maybe I can still go back. Maybe it's not too late for me. But while he was still a long way off, I just, you got to picture this. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. There is nothing in this story, even to today, that if a, a child took everything that I had and left and squandered it and they came back. There's nothing that when that child knocks on the door for me to go, you're no longer my son. Maybe that's even happened to some of you. You're no longer my daughter. I want you, I want you out of here. I want you out of my life. And we would we'd get it. That's not part of the story. It's not part of the gospel that he runs down to him. He runs to him and he embraces him. He hugs him and he kisses him. And here comes this rehearsed speech. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be call, called your son. But he can't even get the next words out. Because the next words that he was supposed to say is, uh, uh, make me like one of your hired servants. So he's, he gets cut off. His dad immediately says, no father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, right? So, so you're not my servant. I'm gonna go call my servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it around him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's have a feast to celebrate for this son was mine, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the other son was in the field. The good kid, just working for dad, doing my job, doing what you've asked me to do. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them what was going on. The servant said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fat calf because he has him back and is safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father, <laughs> like what a good guy, right? Here's the dad running to this child and now going out to this child the father goes out to this one and pleads with him. But he, the son, answered his father, look, look at all these years I've served you. Look at all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Dad, I've obeyed. I've followed all your rules. I don't don't understand. why You haven't even given given me a goat. And you can probably hear the wheels turning in his dad's head going, you want a, you want a goat? There's a, there's a fatted calf right here. You, and you want a goat. And he's saying, I've, just, I've worked my tail off for you. And I think there are some of you in this room that maybe grew up in the faith and grew up in the church and said, hey, how come that guy's getting all the blessings? How come that person is, is receiving all the fatted calfness of your good mercies and grace? And here I am with nothing. And the father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So again, my question, do we have anything to be joyful about. I think the obvious answer to that when we're talking about salvation is yes. That every single buddy in this room was lost and can be and is found in Christ Jesus through the love of our heavenly father who sent Jesus on our behalf. And yet at the same time, we have to ask that question, is there anything that is lost, or is there any one that is lost that you're praying about, that you're thinking about? What I would encourage you today, that those individuals, wherever they are, wherever you think they are, they've wandered away, they're just squandering everything, don't even realize it. Listen, the only possible way this person can hear about Jesus and his love is through you. You've gotta be bold, you've gotta be able to tell them. Call them out. And tell them about this father that loves them and gave his life for them. And at the same time, if you know somebody or if you're over here, you got to tell them. For the majority of my life, and I'm still here, I still fight this. Of of, of legalism of saying, hey, hey, I'm doing doing what you told me to do. Where's the fatted calf? Just tell you what, I don't even need a fatted calf, I just need a goat. Just to be able to look up and say, but you gave me Jesus. I've had everything that you've ever had to offer this whole time. And if that's all you ever give me, help me fall to my knees and thank you. But yet to be over here and to be in this position of somebody who was going through the motions, I needed a friend to sit down over a cup of coffee and say, Brian, you don't believe the gospel. You don't actually believe the good news of Jesus. And it's like, yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, I do. I I'm a pastor. I mean, I I teach this stuff. No, you don't. Because you think you still have to do something and you can't do anything. Got to rely on Jesus. We have to share the gospel. And so do we have anything joyful to be anything to be joyful about? The answer is yes, because of Jesus. Because of what he's done for us. And I am so thankful that every week we get to enter into a time of communion together. I I love the fact that we get to look at these elements and I hope and I pray that it doesn't just become mundane, that it doesn't just become uh, ritualistic, it doesn't become pharisaical. Just to, to, I'm just eating some bread, I'm just drinking some juice, 
This is to remember what Jesus did. This is to remember that it was because of his sacrifice that allows the Father to run out and embrace you and hug you and lift you off your feet and kiss you. Because he can love you because Jesus loves you. That's what we can rejoice about. And so when we look at the sacrificial meal that was instituted over 2,000 years ago, by Jesus Christ, as they're celebrating the Passover meal, something that's been going on for thousands of years by the Israelites, he says, I'm going to change something. Something new is going to happen. This no longer is going to be a lamb that's going to take away your sins, but the lamb who takes away the sins of the whole world, me. And it's going to be my body and my blood that will be shed for you. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus and the night he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood. do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's exactly what we're going to do. For whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're gonna enter into a time of communion, time of confession, time of corporate singing. And so I want us in closing, I want us to confess not believing the gospel, right? And, and I think anybody who says, no, man, I'm a Christian. I, I get it. Listen, I'm telling you right now, there are moments, there are things that happen where you don't actually believe the good news of Jesus Christ. That when somebody points out sin in your life and you get defensive, you don't believe the gospel. Because the gospel says Jesus already died for that thing. And if I'm adopted by him, if I'm in his family, there's nothing to be guilty or, or, or shamed about. He's set me free. Why? So that I can be free from all of that. So let's confess not believing the gospel. And let's actually confess as well believing that so-and-so can't be saved. Because I'm telling you, so-and-so can be saved. Just look at the apostle Paul as Saul, as a man who killed people in the name of Yahweh, Jesus saves that individual. And we can look at the apostle Paul and say that no one at anywhere, at any point, is beyond the reach of the power of Jesus Christ. Nobody. Do you believe that? And then finally, let's rejoice. I mean, can we just rejoice for what Christ has done for us? and our behalf for his honor and his glory. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his life, his wisdom, his perfection. That as these two groups of people are sitting around him, that he, only, he doesn't just only eat with sinners, but he also eats with Pharisees. And every single time he says, you all are guilty and you all lack one thing, and that thing is me. So God, I pray for those of us in this room that think we can do it on our own to remember we can't. And as we partake of this body and blood of Jesus that we remember who you are. That it is only because of your grace and your mercy that we're able to be here. And those who maybe are wandering, are squandering what you've given them, that they would come back, that they would go back and realize that they may seem like they have nothing. But to remember, but there is somebody somebody who loves me, somebody who cares. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.